Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest. Uh, his name is James A. Shapiro. He's uh, worked as a professor of microbiology at the University of Chicago since 1973. Very, very long, distinguished career in microbiology, um, perhaps some evolutionary biology, things like that. Uh, he's a great person to speak to. He's got tons of knowledge. Um, he has a recent book he's come out with is uh, Evolution, A View from the 21st Century. He's written countless dozens of uh, articles and papers and many books. So, James, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Uh, you know, I guess we, we can ask about this first. In the, in the time of the virus, the uh, SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, everyone's talking about it. But I, I would guess you have some unique insights as to... Uh, not only this virus, but viruses and how they interact with the evolution of all things. So I guess you've written an article about it recently. What's, uh, what's your take on the current situation? And let's, let's talk about viruses in general. Well, uh, first about COVID, uh, uh, a friend of mine uh, f- found an article which uh, claimed that COVID was, was genetically engineered by human beings. And uh, we got some young people to look up, do the sequence analysis and check that out. And it turns out not to be true. Uh, the same things that this person felt were genetically engineered were found in uh, uh, related coronaviruses found in, in bats and uh, other animals. So okay. uh, that rules out human genetic engineering of, of the virus. That's one mm. of those things that's been going around, uh, but it turns out to be incorrect. And we looked at it very carefully. Uh, well, a quick question about that. So... Does that mean you didn't see any novel sequences in SARS-CoV-2? Like, like, how would you know if it was engineered by humans, even if such a thing could be done? Well, this person was picking up some homologies to HIV and other immunodeficiency viruses, uh, but they're found in, in uh, SARS virus isolated from bats. So nobody engineered that. Right. Okay. And... Um, those that just happen to be those kinds of uh, sequence similarities which come up either by chance or probably in this case because uh, the proteins that are being encoded do similar functions in the, in the, in the two viruses. Would it be uh, an amazing feat if people could engineer a virus, you know, one that had uh, directed properties? Is that, uh, you think that's technically feasible or is that a way off? Uh, no, it's clearly technically feasible. Uh, and um, uh, I remember when I was starting my career, we were doing this all the time with bacterial viruses, bacteriophages. So we would engineer them uh, or isolate ones which had picked up pieces of, of the bacterial chromosome. And uh, viruses uh, in evolution play a lot of different roles. Most people think of them simply as parasites. Uh, but in fact, uh, viruses do a lot of positive things. And they uh, are capable of picking up uh, uh, DNA and transmitting it to cells uh, and uh, p- 
providing uh, useful functions for cells. So um, the, uh, some of the viruses and bacteria in, in nature, which are, are found uh, help protect the bacteria from uh, uh, parasites, from uh, protozoa and other amoebae and things that eat them up. And uh, they produce toxins, which are uh, knock off these predators. And so it's useful to the bacteria. Unfortunately, when the bacteria tend to get into the human uh, environment, in our water supply or something like that, they can cause disease. And the same toxins the bacteria use to protect themselves uh, often contribute to human disease. So um, uh, this is a, a property called lysogenic conversion, where a bacterium picks up a virus, incorporates it into its genome, and uh, acquires new properties as a result of that. Wait a minute. So what if I was infected by a bacteria, I don't know, E. coli of whatever strain was virulent, um, but then I was infected by E. coli that also had a virus that was commensally living inside of it? I mean, does that happen? And then we would mistake and wonder why, for instance, um, you know, an E. coli infection one time got me sick and another time it didn't get me sick, or... It got these people sick, but not these other people sick. Do you think this is a, a, a hidden determinant of, of what a bacteria, for instance, can do to us if it's pathogenic? Uh, well, it's not so hidden because it's been known about for about, uh, uh, goodness, it's going on to 75 years now. I guess I, you know, I'm not everybody. I don't know about it. And I, yeah. I've never heard it talked about. That's why I ask. Yeah. So, well, I'm interested uh, in, in viruses as to what they can contribute to cells. Right. And, That's better, uh, man. I think about viruses as kind of the, the R&D sector of the evolution process. Uh, it turns out that viruses have a lot of uh, sequences which have never been seen anywhere else in nature. We don't have any idea of where they come from, but very frequently viruses contribute sequences to living cells. Um, uh, but it's very rare that the viruses acquire sequences that from cells. So it's kind of a one-way uh, transfer system. And uh, Well, do they, is it rare? I mean, like, like for instance, I looked up uh, GIS AID, they're, they're cataloging like, you know, the, the COVID-19 sequences, and they have like 4,000 something, and they said there's like already 1,600 variants. So where would the virus, you know, how would it vary? Is it just, I don't know, is it RNA uh, recombining and mutating on its own, or is it picking up things from human hosts and endogenizing it into the virus itself, changing well, that way? Yeah, uh, uh, the, the coronaviruses are RNA viruses. And uh, as far as I know, they don't have exist in DNA form. So uh, they don't become part of our genomes. There are other viruses like the retroviruses, which are actually copied into DNA and are a very important part of our genome. And uh, some people would like to think that all they do is cause trouble but it turns out that in evolution of vertebrates and evolution of mammals in particular, uh, retroviruses have been extremely important. They allow us to have yeah. an immune system. Uh, they make it possible for pregnancy. They contribute to the development of the placenta. And, um, yeah, I've heard that, yeah. So uh, their viruses are playing a very positive role. It seems like viruses are a vast library of you know genetic ability that are all around us. And some we unintentionally harness, you know, they infect us. And some we, I guess we try to intentionally harness. It's, it's just weird. It just, that's what it appears to me is like this vast library of possibilities that is everywhere if we can understand its language and somehow use it. 
Right. That, that's why I call it the R&D sector. It's where a lot of new things come in. And uh, some of them prove to be very useful and very important, uh, and others don't. Do you, um, you think that viruses are alive, or at least contingently alive, once they enter into a cell? Well, viruses are, are, are part of what we can call the biosphere. And uh, they're really uh, ways of cells communicating with each other. Viruses on their own can't reproduce or, or do much. But once they get into a cell, of course, then they can become active. And we focused on some of the pathological properties of the viruses. Um, but as I said, they, they also do a lot of useful things for cells. Well, do you think that viruses are adapting towards a goal, you know, becoming less virulent, more commensal, or maybe even trying to endogenize into the host if they could? And I know most can't, but like, do you think viruses have a goal? Are they adapting towards something or are they just randomly changing and they don't seem to be they seem to be have, have like some kind of directed behavior of adaptation well each kind of virus is different and each changes in its own way um, it's generally not random change but one pattern that we do see is that new viruses come in and when they first come in just as we see with uh, COVID-19 they can cause a lot of trouble but after a while, uh, the host and, and the virus become uh, adapted to each other, and uh, then the host can make use of the virus. And this is certainly what happens with endogenous retrovirus. Those are the ones that are involved in the evolution of pregnancy and the immune system and other systems in our bodies. Do you think that, um, that adaptation is driven both by our own cells and by the virus, or just by our own cells? Um, well, it... it uh, once the, the virus has become endogenous, that means it's part of the genome, uh, it's really part of the, the, the cell system. And uh, from that point on, it's the cells uh, making use of the retrovirus uh, for its, its own purposes. Okay. Um, yeah, I just wondered, again, if, uh, again, we're doing the adapting, or the virus is doing the adapting. And, uh, you know, I know a, a lot of viruses we may live with our entire lives, and they may not affect us or they may only come out periodically like herpes or HPV or it's weird that it's amazing to think that a lot of creatures will have viruses that are in their cells and hanging out and uh, they never leave, but they never seem to cause any trouble. That's true. I mean, some, some uh, uh, genomes are, are, are a large fraction of them are, are viruses. In fact, uh, our genomes, I think, are 14% uh, retrovirus, which is a lot huh. more than the part of the genome that codes for proteins. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. what what is the uh, what are the role of viruses in evolution? Then do you think that they're um, I don't know are they guiding evolution? Like what you know instead of like a tree of life, when you add viruses to the tree or whatever structure, what does it look like now to you? Well, as as I uh, tried to indicate, uh, viruses are a source of, of new information which may be useful to, to organi uh, evolving organisms at critical junctures in, in evolution. Um, and they're, they're vectors for tra transmitting information from one organism to another. And then when they become part of the genome, uh, they provide uh, extra potential for change in the genome. And I think the, the key thing to recognize is that all organisms have to evolve to survive. Uh, Evolution is not a, a, an accidental process. It's a necessary process because conditions are always changing. And viruses are, are part of the toolkit that living organisms have to evolve. Um, and 
uh, we should look at them that way, uh, not just look at them as, as disease uh, uh, pathogens. Yeah, I agree. Um, if you look at a bacteria, is it, I don't know, does it seem to be able to use viruses? It seems to be able to use viruses as tools pretty readily, from what I've heard. You know, it can snip out pieces of the virus and then put that into its own DNA so that it can recognize it and defend against it. I mean, it seems like there's a big dynamic there. But what about uh, our somatic cells? Do you think that they have much ability to use viruses as tools? Uh, well, we have to explore that. Um, um, in some cases, viruses can be activated in somatic cells, and uh, they can change them. Really? How, how would, when would they be activated? How? Well, uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm working on now with some colleagues is the relationships between cancer evolution and organismal evolution. Mm. And uh, uh, in uh, cancer evolution, we can see very large-scale changes that occur uh, as the cancer develops. Uh, some cancers activate some of these endogenous viruses yeah. and undergo changes with the viruses. Um, and Wait, what do you mean they activate it? Like the, um, so the endogenized bits of virus... Right. How do you know they're activated? Do they do they form virus particles again in the cell, or do they uh, just act as genes and, and they're upregulated and they do things? Well, um, some of the viruses are defective and, and they can't make particles, but others aren't. And typically, um, in, in uh, human cells, for example, the endogenous retroviruses are kept silent by methylation of the DNA. They become part of what's called heterochromatin. That's the, the part of the genome that's not expressed. But if the DNA is demethylated, uh, then the viruses become active. And they can, uh, when the retroviruses in particular, make DNA copies of themselves, which can then go to the new places in the genome and encode new traits. And that's clearly happened in our evolution at important junctures. Uh, and we see that happening in some cancers as well. Really? Yeah. What's the consequence of that? What happens when, you know, the, the methylation is removed, the epigenetic marks are removed by the, you know, in the cancer cells? What is, what have we observed to have happened? Well, uh, we observe activity of these viruses, and that means increased genetic change. Now, there are many other kinds of changes which can go on in cancer cells uh, as well. And cancer is an evolution disease. It's cells evolving to grow in a way that they're not supposed to grow and it's actually injurious to the host. And um, activating the retroviruses is part of that. So it could, you know, I guess to put it bluntly, if you have certain kind of cancer, could that cause a viral infection? But it's, I mean, it's, it's really coming from your own, you know, coming from previously endogenized viruses. Could that, again, virally infect you, but it's, well, it's all coming from your own cells? Uh, it, that's, that's a possibility, uh, but it's actually the internal activity of the viruses, which is what we understand the best. So what kinds of things have been observed when, uh, you know, these endogenized virus genes, uh, are activated? When you treat cancers with demethylating agents, you actually activate these retroviruses wow. and, uh, that can contribute to the formation of, of cancer cells, uh, which are, uh, actually more virulent. Um, but I don't know the, the precise details uh, of that. What, what I do know, and what I think is interesting, is that we often find uh, major changes in structure of the genome in cancer. It's what we call macroevolution. 
which is very different from the kind of microevolution that most people think about. And this is also what happens when new species or new kinds of organisms are, are evolve, uh, that there's a restructuring of the genome and all kinds of changes occur. And what we've learned from cancer is that the same kinds of changes can occur in many different cancers, uh, very complex changes that can occur at different places in the genome, but the patterns of change, the way that things change, uh, are the same, meaning that they're established routines that the organism has, that the cells have for restructuring their genomes. And that, I think, is quite interesting. And it turns out that some of these changes that we observe, uh, when we start to look for them in healthy tissue, we can find uh, examples of changes that have occurred like that in healthy tissue. Because it's not that the cancer cells are doing anything new, they're just using a potential which is there within the organism to restructure its genome uh, and doing it because they're, they're uh, under uh, uh, some pressure to evolve. Oh. For example, there's a, a, a process called chromothripsis, which means chromosome shattering. And what you find is that only a single chromosome in the genome can be broken up into pieces and the pieces can be rearranged and put back together as a chromosome. Sometimes with duplication, sometimes with deletion, missing things. And this is very important. And this is characteristic of about, I think it's a quarter to a third of all cancers. And um, this can happen on different chromosomes. It can even happen in parts of a chromosome. And um, the, the, the sequences affected the, or the chromosomes affected can be different in each case. But this pattern is quite clear. And it's clearly the same process that's at work. So that our, our understanding of how uh, cells restructure their genomes has been expanded to include these more complex rearrangements. And then if we ask what happens in, in uh, uh, historical evolutionary uh, history, um, we find that uh, chromosome changes and restructurings are an important part of that too. And uh, that's what has been called macroevolution. Wow. It's very different from the small minor changes that uh, make up microevolution. You know, I was thinking if the removal of uh, methylation uh, can cause, you know, these, this restructuring, what happens when uh, sperm and egg meet and they form a zygote? I had, I had heard that most epigenetic marks are removed. I wonder if there's any viral activity or activation at that point, and if that actually helps to, I don't know, to let the, the zygote differentiate and grow. Um, well, I, I, I'm not an embryologist. Uh, but the one thing I do know is that uh, cells of the body make little vesicles. And uh, all organisms do this. They're all over the place. These little sacs of membrane, which contain protein or RNA or DNA. And um, in uh, the mouse, at least, and I'm sure this applies to human beings as well, some, some of the tissue in, in, in the male uh, parent, the somatic tissue, has to produce these vesicles with certain RNAs in them and put them into the sperm for the sperm to fertilize an egg and, and lead to normal development. And what that says to me is that these RNAs are a kind of what we call epigenetic information, and they're uh, influencing the way that the genome is, is programmed, if you will, to develop. And if they're not there, then development go, doesn't go in, in the proper sequence. Yeah, extracellular vesicles I know are given off by all cells and big time in cell-to-cell communication. And they're actually reminiscent of viruses. You know, it's like uh, RNA, 
or other stuff in a little envelope that enters into other cells and changes them uh, genetically, you know, at least epigenetically. So right. It sounds very much like a virus. It's weird. It's like a, our cells have a virus-type tool to affect other cells. Well, yes, and it, it, it certainly negates the idea that somehow the germline is, is pristine and immune from the rest of the body. Well, yeah. Because the vesicles can do this. And uh, I wrote about these vesicles and also about the viruses in a paper that I called No Genome is an Island. And I think one of the things we need to understand is how cells interact with each other and with outside uh, sources like viruses uh, in the course of evolution. And this is uh, all over the, 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 uh, the biosphere, these sources of transfer and communication and variability. And uh, uh, I think the idea that an organism is fixed and has to stay that way uh, is, 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 is just not the right way to look at things. I think we have to look at life as a process of continual change. Just as you were saying, yeah. fertilize an egg, then you have to change the, the developmental pattern. And uh, I was just in, in my discussions with a colleague uh, who wrote a very interesting book, a woman named Azura, Azura Raza, wrote a book called The First Cell. I don't know if you've heard of it, yeah, I'm going to be speaking to her in a few weeks. I know she collected uh, well, thousands of tissues. She's a very samples. interesting woman. And her book is very good. It's called The First Cell. Yeah. And um, uh, she uh, sent out an email to, to uh, some of her colleagues about an article where they find that the methylation patterns, the way the, the DNA is methylated in cancer cells is different from those of ordinary cells. But it's more different from ordinary from uh, stem cells than it is from ordinary cells. And the, that's a counter to the idea that somehow cancer is a, a, an atavistic kind of process where the cell goes back to the stem cell type and multiplies in an uncontrolled fashion. And uh, what it tells us is that uh, cancer cells are evolved and are even more programmed, if you will, than the normal somatic cells of the body. What's um if you look at cancer as, as an independent life form now that has its own goals and, you know, homeostatic drive and everything, you know, inside of you, unfortunately, um, why is its goal seem to be destruction? Why isn't it commensalism oh, or mutualism? Why does it uh, not seem to be a, a, something that can persist in us forever? So um, I think in cancer, what, what's happened is that a process has been under conditions where it, it normally wouldn't be activated. And it goes awry. It, it, it's out of control. And that's why it's so destructive. Hmm, okay. But, the, but the, the, the capabilities which are exemplified by the cancer cells to change themselves uh, are capabilities which are used normally in evolution to, to change the organism when its environment changes dramatically. So is cancer like a, a teenage superhero? He, he can't control his powers, but he has all these special powers and he destroys things in the meantime? Um, well, that's one analogy you could use, I suppose. <laughs> I know it's a weird one, but um, how do you think cancer first arises? I mean, you know, the classical theory supposedly is, you know, magically, randomly, one cell mutates and, and off it goes from there. But I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, it's, it's not a, a random process because we know there are certain uh, kinds of cancers which are, have a, a hereditary basis 
and are more likely in some people than others. So that's not random. We know that if you come in contact with certain things, you're more likely to develop cancer than if you're not. Like if you smoke, for example, you're more likely to develop lung cancer. So that's not random. Uh, so there are things which act on the uh, cells of the body and induce them to uh, uh, undergo uh, genetic change. And that's how cancer initiates. Um, I don't think we've been able to look at the very early stages of cancer. Uh, one of the problems is that we, we've taken some laboratory models, and you can talk to Dr. Raza about this uh, in more detail, uh, of the earliest stages of cancer that we do in the laboratory. But cells in the laboratory are not like cells in the body. And so we can't take what we can do in the laboratory and, and use that as a model for what's occurring in the body. And um, one of the um, points of, of uh, focusing on the relationships between uh, organismal evolution and evolution of cancer cells is to see what kind of parallels can be drawn and if it can help us get to a better understanding uh, of the origins of cancer and also to be able to detect cancer at earlier stages. Yeah, it seems, this is my speculation, of course, but cancer is a, a forced maladaptation, you know, when a, a group of cells is under persistent stress, you know, they're continually adapting, but I guess they're just, their hand is forced in a way to, uh, to adapt, and it's a maladaptation. From there, there's uh, perhaps no turning back. Yeah, well, there are all kinds of stresses that go on in the body. And we know uh, in, in all organisms and all kinds of cells that stresses trigger some of these uh, uh, functions that the cells have to change their, their heredity. And uh, that's obviously happening at the origin of cancers. And the more we can spare ourselves of, of triggering those events, the better off we are. So if, if you don't want lung cancer, don't smoke. And that's turned out to be very effective in, in bringing down lung cancer. Uh, other cancers, you don't want to be exposed to certain chemicals, and uh, uh, we can deal with that. Um, also, it's, it's not clear that cancer is a single disease. By that, I mean that there are different kinds of cancers, and they may have different uh, origins and different triggers. Well, I've heard that some cancers are um, caused by viruses like HPV. Um, what's the mechanism look like, and can we see it very early on when uh, a virus appears to cause a cancer? Um, well, uh, the one that uh, is understood the, the, perhaps the best is Rouse sarcoma virus, where the virus has picked up a piece of, of the, the, the uh, genome uh, and expresses a protein, the sarcotene, unusually high uh, degree, and that uh, upsets the regulation of the cell and sets in motion a, a train of events in chickens that leads to the formation of sarcomas. Um, uh, I don't know about the, the details with HPV or, or with herpes viruses, but there are other uh, uh, retroviruses which have picked up uh, so-called oncogenes and are inf infectious uh, uh, triggers for, uh, for cancer. So that can definitely happen. Um, okay. Also, bacteria are, are triggers for cancer. Then the microbiome itself, I mean, our microbial attachment is super important and you know, I know they have their own phage, but, but yeah, the, uh, the microbial interactions with our own cells, I mean, I've asked before, some say yes, some don't know, but I would guess that, you know, our microbiome communicates with our somatic cells. 
know, they're certainly making metabolites for us. We're making stuff for them, but maybe they're using, you know, vesicles or plasmids to communicate and regulate our cells and vice versa. I mean, well, uh, who knows? Yes, that's definitely going on. Um, actually, we're bringing our conversation almost full circle because bacteria which cause cancer tend to make toxins which act on the DNA and damage it, and that destabilizes uh, the repair processes. And uh, then you get genetic changes and, and you induce a tumor. And those toxins are carried by viruses, phages, which infect those bacteria. And uh, that's what gives them the ability to produce those toxins. So um, we see that, that uh, uh, the viruses carry these um, uh, sequences for, for producing the toxins. Uh, in some environments where the bacteria are in, say, an aqueous environment, um, it's okay. It protects them from, from predators. But when they're in the human body, it can be a problem. So uh, I guess to return to a previous analogy, we can be, you know, bitten by a mosquito that's carrying a virus that can make us sick. And I guess what you're saying is we can be infected by a bacteria that can make us sick, or the bacteria can be carrying a virus that could then make us sick, or a parasite that's carrying a virus. Or a par- I mean, it seems like viruses, again, are, uh, they can attach to any, just about any living thing and then cause disease and cause change on a, on a massive scale. Um, well, basically, that's correct. That's amazing. I'm just As I'm saying it, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, this is crazy. Well, that's life. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's amazing. I don't know if, you know, if... Uh, Hey, that's a good. What amazes you? What amazes you about what you've been learning, or does everything amaze you? Um, yeah, well, I, I I would agree with that last statement. I mean, uh, the more we learn, uh, the more amazed we become. So uh, we used to think that uh, only kinds of changes which occurred in DNA or changes of nucleotides and or loss of uh, nucleotides creating frame shifts. That's what. It, uh, was the dogma when I was a, a graduate student in the mid-60s. Um, and then I had these mutations which didn't behave like nucleotide substitutions or frame shifts, and it turned out that they were pieces of DNA. And now I know that those are what are called mobile genetic elements or transposable elements, which move through the genome. And uh, initially, you might think, well, well these are just uh, people who would call them junk DNA and say that they were just harmful and were parasites. But now we know that this DNA is what allows evolutionary change to happen. And uh, uh, most, more than half of our genome is composed of this kind of DNA, this mobile DNA. And we're learning about how it's used at higher level regulation of how the genome functions. And um, um, what we're trying to understand with, with cancer and with organisms as well is how do they change? How do they use this, these mobile genetic elements and mobile DNA, and how do they create genomes which have different properties and generate organisms or subcultures which can do different things? So if I was to uh, longitudinally sequence a whole bunch of people when they were little, then as they're middle-aged and then older, would, I, would, would we see that uh, their genes have changed? Their, their underlying DNA has rearranged and changed substantially? Uh, I, I think so. I think there are actually some studies like that um, where they, they take uh, different tissues and sequence them, and they find that there are, are DNA differences between the, the different tissues. Wow. Huh. 
I think what the, what they looked at initially, at least, was was what are called copy number variation. And what's that? Or CMVs. Oh, what, what does that mean? It means that the copy of a sequence, a particular sequence, a particular particular region of the genome changes. So you get duplications or triplications, or you get circular DNA, which is can replicate independently. And we see these things happening in cancer, but we're finding out more and more that they're happening in, in normal tissue. Weird. And uh, some of them may be part of the, the, the developmental uh, program, if you will, uh, of those tissues. Uh, I don't know how far advanced the, the analysis has gone. And I, I, I probably shouldn't say too much more because I'm not an expert in this area. Um, but I think it's an interesting area to think about. Uh, the genome in every cell is not identical, and um, that makes sense because the cells are not identical. Well, but supposedly they all have, you know, you can induce pluripotency and then they can supposedly do everything, but uh, I guess they're differentiated differently, but uh, they may be different on a, deep, a deeper level, a genetic level, sounds like. Um, yes. I mean, they, they, have the, they have the basic, well, a friend of mine who's a cancer oncologist, uh, a cancer uh, cytogenesis calls the parts list. They have the, the, the parts list, that one and a half percent or less of our genome that encodes the proteins. So they can do, make different kinds of cells um, and they can undergo those changes. Um, but how those uh, different uh, uh, parts of the genome or different proteins are made and when they're made is different in different tissues. Also with changes, of course, in, in the course of, of, of cancer. And I think that there's a lot that we still don't understand about how uh, differentiation and morphogenesis are controlled. That's right. Yeah. How is, uh, why do, you know, a hundred plus billion people have one liver instead of two? And it's always a similar shape and a similar placement versus other organs. And yeah, it's weird. Where is that plan? You know, what, are there genes that control it? Like, how could you, you know, how could you know that from just one cell differentiating in the right directions and again, cells forming not only the right structures, but the right size of them and in proportion to each other at distance and everything. It's, it's weird. Right. So, so there's a lot there to learn. And uh, we have all this molecular biology and we can read all these DNA sequences, but there's other things going on that we haven't figured out yet. And I think it's, it's always a good idea to keep in mind that uh, what we don't know is, is, is probably much greater than what we do know. Yeah. Um, how do we know like what uh, a particular gene will will do? You know, I guess the only way is we, we observe it and we see that oh, in, in, in all these creatures, this this sequence seems to code for this protein or whatever. Like how you know how would we understand the language of RNA or the language of DNA independently? So we can look at a sequence and say, oh yeah, based on the the order of things, it's going to code for these things. Well, I think it's a mistake to. Think about it uh, independently. I think that that's held back our, our understanding of how these systems work because uh, you've got a genome which can make all different kinds of cells. So it's not just the proteins that it can make, but it's how they're expressed and in what combinations. And they can make very different kinds of tissue. They can make teeth. They can make intestines. They can make uh, livers, as you pointed out, hearts, eyes brains, uh, skin, all different kinds of, uh, of, of tissues. And it's not because of the content of the, 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 the genome, 
it's how the genome gets used. And uh, what we uh, don't understand is uh, how the, the, the genome is, is um, I don't know how to put it, how the system is controlled during development so that we get these different kinds of tissues. And we also don't understand how these uh, how different kinds of organisms form in evolution. But what we need to look at is not necessarily just the bits and pieces, the individual proteins, but we have to look at how the system is organized and how it accomplishes these, these remarkable uh, feats of uh, diversification and of utilization of, its inf of the information in so many different ways. Yeah, like the question of, you know, where is the life in a cell, in a bacteria? You know, has anyone tried to, you know, take a cell apart, selectively remove pieces of it until it's quote-unquote dead? What makes a cell alive? What's the minimum assemblage of, of atoms or molecules to make something alive? It's weird. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because um, you, you're asking a kind of uh, uh, a little bit of an origin of life type question. And I'm, I'm not very keen on, on, on those because I think we don't know enough to discuss that. But uh, it's interesting that Craig Venner and his colleagues uh, have, have made what they call synthetic organisms from mycoplasmas, which are the uh, living cells with the smallest genomes. But in fact, all they've done is by chemically synthesizing sequences which have the same coding capacity as the natural sequence. And not all of those uh, synthetic uh, sequences uh, are functional. But so uh, we don't know how to, to, to make a living cell from, uh, uh, from the beginning. We can only do it by copying cells that already exist. Hmm. And we don't know what is, what is it about that unique combination of elements that makes something living. Yeah. Um, I think that's correct. And it seems well, to be more than just, just the DNA sequence. You need the cell, you need the, the mem membrane, you need the metabolism, uh, and you need the, the other features of, of the cell, which perhaps we don't understand yet. Yeah. What do you uh, sense that science is close to figuring out, perhaps in the next few years, any major things that uh, you're really looking to see when we can make a breakthrough on? Um, I think we're going to understand evolution in a different way. Certainly that's what I've been interested in. And also I think we're going to understand uh, how cells operate in a different way. I was invited to contribute to uh, a special issue of a journal uh, on the subject of cognition. And I think I was invited because uh, a number of years ago I wrote a paper which the title began, Bacteria are small but not stupid. And I was talking about all of the cognitive uh, abilities that bacteria have. And I'm writing a paper now uh, called All Living Cells Are Cognitive and trying to point out all the ways that cells pick up information from their environment, from other cells, uh, about what goes on inside of them uh, so that they can repair the, uh, themselves when things go wrong or there's damage in, inside of them. And uh, I think we're going to think about cells in a more uh, integrated, system, systemic, and um, cognitive way as we try and understand some of these uh, mysteries that uh, are there for us because they're, they're really problems about how systems change. If we think about development of different tissues and morphology, 
uh, it's taking the, the genome as a database and how does the system use it in different ways to make all these different kinds of uh, cells and, and tissues. So yeah. I think that's where progress lies. And um, I'm not sh exactly sure how we approach that. Some people use computer systems as a model, but I don't know that that's really the best model to use because certainly uh, living cells are, are far more efficient uh, than any computer system. Well, I don't think they're living machines. I think they, they are intelligent because they, you know, the information they, they work with is ambiguous. There's nothing 100% specific, and they, they take contingent action, you know, depending on what the information is that they're evaluating. And that's not a machine. That's, that's intelligence that does that, you know? Well, where is the intelligence that's doing that? We, we I don't know. But it's, it's there. Yeah. Right. Well, that may be something that we've got to figure out. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know how close or how distant we are um, from that. Well, I think the uh, the sad thing is that, you know, people aren't even allowed to challenge the assumptions, let's say, of, you know, of neo-Darwinism. You know, they're, if, you, if you think about a problem and you assume different things instead of, you know, uh, random mutation and natural selection, it opens your mind up to a whole different way of thinking, but very few people are willing to even do that. You know, it's like they're, I mean, well, they're afraid that they'd be ridiculed and uh, why not? Maybe that's where progress will come from is by saying, all right, well, maybe these base assumptions are wrong. Let's assume this other way and see what, what happens. What if we assume a, a cell is cognitive in its own way? How mm -hmm. does that change how we evaluate what it does and how it does it? Well, that's, that's exactly the point I'm trying to make. Yes, I agree with you. Um, and I, I think we need to change assumptions, especially when we have evidence to the contrary that the the basic assumptions are 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 are, are faulty. Mm. Uh, for example, the basic assumptions about random mutations yeah. in evolution, where we know that the, there are dedicated systems in cells for changing the the DNA. So the the basic assumption there is 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 mistaken. And we have to understand that that's part of life. And uh, in, in the problem of cancer, of course, is understanding how that triggering those systems can go awry uh, and lead to uh, 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 cancer and death. Um, but they're there, and, and they're important at, at other times in, in evolution. Yeah. So that's where we have to look at, at, at evolution. And it means probably looking at different parts of the genome we're not accustomed to, to studying if you're using DNA as your starting point. Um, and the point of writing about uh, uh, cells being cognitive, especially uh, bacteria and, and uh, archaea, the, the simplest cells we know about, um, is to point out that, that sensitivity and, and uh, responsiveness and cognition are there in all cells. And uh, if you start from that basis and ask, well, how does that cognition work? What is the uh, basis of it? Right. How does it make things come out right? Uh, I think you, you perhaps will get different answers than if you say, well, if I understand uh, all of the uh, atoms in, in this structure of this protein, I'll know everything about it. Mm, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, neo-Darwinism or Darwinism was a great construct to help us understand things but i think now it's become uh it's crippled crippled science and thought and i think it's become a poison that's uh, excluded a lot of other thought but that's just you know that's my opinion so 
Right. Well, one of the reasons I got interested in cancer was that uh, this colleague I was mentioning earlier, who was a, a cancer cytogeneticist, uh, wrote a book called Genome Chaos. And he sent it to me. And it's a, a very interesting book. And it's a, a lot of the book is about how the idea that uh, all that was important about genomes are the genes um, rather than the structure of the genome and, and the, the organization of the genome, um, that this was misleading us. And so we're doing all of this sequencing and we're probably sequencing the wrong parts of the genome and we're not understanding uh, what it is about the, the, the genome that is giving uh, cancer cells their, their capacities. Yeah, I don't know. Well, James, this has been a great call where, you know, we're out of time, but uh, how can people find out more about your work, which is ongoing and, you know, your papers and how can they get their first exposure to you and, and learn more? Well, uh, they can follow my uh, website, shapiro.bsd.uchicago.edu. Um, and uh, if you put that in, it will pull up my webpage and there's a lot of information there. Uh, you can try and get a copy of my 2011 book on evolution. Uh, it's out of print now, uh, but you can buy or even rent paperback copies of it. And I'm hoping to publish a second edition at some point with some of the more recent information in it, uh, basically to show that uh, the ideas about cells engineering their genomes and using the genomes as read-write memory systems have been uh, uh, supported by uh, lots of new information that's come out. And uh, okay. that's where people can look. And, and also, I had a blog on the Huffington Post for a while, and you can still access those if you go to James Shapiro or James A. Shapiro at Huffington Post. Very good. Well, James, thanks again for coming back. It's, uh, okay, it's always you. good to talk to you, and I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.